0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a guest who has written an excellent piece that I wanted all of you guys to check out. We're going to be talking about his new piece and more, but joining me from the National Review, it's Nate Hawkman. Hock- uh, thanks for joining me, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to get into your piece on North Dakota and why radical gender ideology has kind of infiltrated that state and why it seems to be able to work its way not just into these deep red states, but many different right leaning institutions. But before we get to all of that, for my listeners who might be unfamiliar with you, can you give a little bit of background? How did you get started and uh, what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so I'm a writer at National Review, which is where this this piece on South Dakota ran. Uh, I've been there for a little under two years. I graduated college before that. Um, But I've written, you know, all over the place, Claremont Review of Books, American Mind, you know, some mainstream publications like the New York Times. But my main post uh, is at National Review. And it's where I do, you know, most of the reporting, especially like the long form stuff that you'll find like this
0: excellent so your piece focuses specifically on north dakota though like i said we're going to talk about other states and why this isn't just a phenomenon there but you know you started the piece by talking about how there's this you know radical conference on transgenderism in a state that we wouldn't otherwise think of as one that would be predominantly left-leaning why is there a massive conference on this in a place like south dakota
1: Right. So South Dakota, it's the third most conservative uh, state in the in the country in terms of the actual sort of public opinion, conservatism of of its population. I cited that at the beginning of the piece. It's been controlled by Republican supermajorities since like 1996. So it's sort of I mean, that was what caught my attention in the first place is there's this big third annual sort of Midwest gender identity summit for transgender medical specialists, which is sort of, you know, standard issue gender identity experts, you know, actual surgeons who do in-state surgeries, including on children, uh, for, for sort of gender transitions. Um, and I looked into it and it's being hosted at the Sanford research center, which is sort of the big outpost of Sanford health, which is this major healthcare company based in Sioux falls in South Dakota. Uh, it's the, it's the seventh or it's, it's the largest employer in South Dakota by a degree of like 700%. Uh, It's valued at $7.5 billion. So it's really by far the largest and most, at least economically most powerful institution in the entire state. Uh, And as a result, it has the ear, I I would say to put it excessively charitably, of a large segment of the Republican establishment in South Dakota. And when I started looking into it, this wasn't the first time I'd kind of dug into this stuff in South Dakota but it was the most comprehensive sort of investigation. What I found was that basically the South Dakota legislature, despite being a bicameral Republican supermajority, hasn't been able to pass almost any sort of anti-gender ideology, kind of conservative transgender bills uh, over the course of the last decade, even the kinds that you've seen in much less red conservative states like Florida. You know, you've also seen stuff in Texas and Arkansas. And the result of that, uh, largely is because of the influence of this massive healthcare company, which, you know, happens to to profit off of puberty blockers and sex change surgeries, uh, but also I think is just ideologically committed along with a lot of transgender activists pushing this stuff. And unfortunately, the, the GOP establishment in South Dakota has gone along with them. And I think South Dakotans are unfortunately uh, reaping the negative consequences.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting ways to approach this, but let's go ahead and look at maybe the GOP establishment there first, because I come from a state like Florida, where basically if you want to get elected for a very long time, unless you happen to be in like Miami, you needed to be a Republican. And so that means a lot of people take what we call the Republican baptism in Florida politics, where they came down and, you know, they had been Democrats their whole life. They had held like center left opinions. They had been involved in unions and and, all kinds of other things that are considered traditionally left wing. But all of a sudden they're down in Florida and they need to get elected. And magically, they're Republicans. Nothing has really changed in their ideology. But they do have the correct indicator on the ticket to make sure that they can, you know, the, the, the primary is the election in, in, in a lot of these places. Is that the kind of thing happening in South Dakota? Are the majority of people there in the legislature actually Republican or right wing? Or do people just understand that they need to become Republican in order to get elected? So it's definitely part of it.
1: I mean, one particularly damning example that I
0: found uh, is
1: this guy who just got elected to the state house this cycle, you know, November, 2022, who happens to be the husband of the majority whip in the state Senate, Helene Duhamel, uh, ran as a Republican and surprise, surprise, got elected with a lot of financial backing from, from Sanford groups, by the way, uh, but he had previously run and won for uh, a bunch of local sort of state offices as a registered Democrat. He had been a registered Democrat his entire life. Uh, And he, you know, oh, by the way, he had had, uh, donated thousands of dollars to Hillary Clinton's campaign in in 2007 and 2008. Right. So just exactly what you're describing, lifelong Democrat, as far as we can tell, going back, you know, more than a decade, who understood that if he actually wanted to get elected to the state legislature, he had to flip the D and and put an R next to his name. uh, And we have no indication that he has changed any of his beliefs, it also raises questions about one of the most powerful people in the state uh, legislature who happens to be his wife. Um, So that certainly exists. And there's been some some sort of commentary by local media about the fact that if you you know, if if you're a Democrat, and you want to win in South Dakota, you just run as a Republican. But I think the the deeper issue in South Dakota that I found, which is certainly not limited to South Dakota, Um, is that there's just this sort of old school, business friendly sort of chamber of commerce wing of the GOP, which exists at the national level as well, uh, which was raised in an era where, you know, the business of of America was business, where basically there was no real problem from the conservative perspective of going along with what business interests like the Chamber of Commerce or Sanford Health uh, were pushing for. Uh, and the sort of economic argument, you know, that that what what we want to do is basically just what is best for sort of GDP growth, was a relatively viable argument. It made sense, um, and a lot of a lot of those folks in places like South Dakota are still convinced by those arguments when they're made by, you know, the South Dakota Chamber of Commerce or Sanford Health or whatever, um, even when it means advancing. Uh, these extremely radical sort of cultural policies, which are certainly at odds uh, with what South Dakotans are actually actually think they're voting for. And I think are just at odds with you know any reasonable interpretation of conservative principles.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And that does make sense that they kind of go along to get along with the business interests. But there is a big difference. and And I don't think there should be. I mean, people should understand that some of the business policies like you know mass immigration those kind of things that have destroyed the american worker and american culture were just as destructive as what business is trying to push now but i, I can understand why the average person isn't immediately shocked by okay you know we're going to let some more workers in i can see how that that wouldn't immediately set off alarm bells but the kind of things that are being pushed now are literally child mutilation it's literally allowing you know boys to come in and you know beat up a a woman under the guise of of, uh, female participation in sports i mean these are things that are these bills that are supposed to be protecting children against this kind of stuff are being held back by people like the governor of the state i mean what's going on that they don't see that this is very dangerous. Yeah, really quickly, I totally agree with with what you said at the outset. You know, the Chamber of Commerce,
1: I think, has always been at odds with, well, certainly obviously been at odds with the sort of populist or, for, you know, furthest right wing of the GOP um, uh, on issues like immigration. That's the most obvious one. Uh, but, you know, I did a long piece about the National Chamber of Commerce uh, last year. Uh, and the the Chamber of Commerce of the 1990s wouldn't have dared to, to touch kind of like diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, LGBT stuff, et cetera, because it understood that that was uh, sort of unacceptable to working with Republicans who was ba- were basically the main party they were working with. Um, and also just because big business leaders weren't as left wing, or at least as radical uh, back then as, as they are now. Um, so there has been a shift, but certainly the Chamber of Commerce wing, I don't think has ever been really on the right uh, side when it comes to a lot of important issues. Um, but the, the the sort of Christy Noem situation, you know, Noem has positioned herself as this sort of conservative fighter on the national stage. Her big claim to fame was that South Dakota was the only state that never locked down, which is true. Uh, but another part of the investigation I found was that she actually tried to lock down the state and she was blocked by conservatives in the state legislature and then turned around and took credit for it. Um, but I think a variety of her missteps, uh, most notoriously her veto of this ban on men and women's sports uh, in March 2021, have invited some deserved scrutiny of her record. And what sort of began to unravel was that both Noam and a lot of other Republican leaders in South Dakota were much more loyal to big business interests, particularly Sanford Health, uh, than they were to uh, you know the actual conservative voters who elect them.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about the preoccupation with business interests because you you hit that pretty hard. And I think rightly so. And I think this presents a really huge problem for conservatives, right? Because understandably, most Republican governors want to grow the economies of their state, right? They want to welcome large businesses into their state so that these people can provide the kind of employment opportunities and economic boost that will really you know, make them stand out. The problem is that, like you said, at this point, all of these companies are very radically left wing. And that means that necessarily, even if it's not their direct intention, conservatives are welcoming, welcoming a kind of left wing fifth column directly into their states. So no matter how conservative or red ideologically or culturally their state might become, they are dependent on the economic apparatus of these large companies who will inevitably, it seems, influence the state in the leftward direction.
1: Right. And that has become all the more apparent, you know, if you look at red states, not just South Dakota, but everything from the sort of 2015 battle over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana, the overturning of the bathroom bill in North Carolina, there have been a bunch of really high profile examples in recent years of this sort of big set of big business interests, uh, having sort of fused their economic power, which has a lot of clout uh, in especially smaller rural states like South Dakota, with these really powerful national and local left-wing activist groups on cultural issues. And the problem is, I think, that the sort of old school business friendly wing of the GOP, which is often the majority of the GOP in these deep red states, which is why the sort of deep red hue uh, can be deceiving from the outside looking in, uh, are often unwilling to actually put up a fight because it's sort of not the way that they learn to do politics. Um, and it's also, by the way, the, uh, the majority of their campaign donations a lot of the time. Um, so Sanford Health, I think, in South Dakota, is one of the most extreme examples we've seen thus far just because of the extreme nature of exactly what is being pushed in a state which is one of the most conservative ones in the country. But it's a phenomenon that you see all across the country. Um, even or even especially in a lot of deep red states, which I think have become complacent because they think of themselves as conservative states. And it does raise serious questions about, you know, when I hear someone like Greg Abbott talking about wanting to build sort of a Silicon Valley in Texas, I understand that argument for for having sort of a really robust uh, economy with a lot of GDP growth. That's obviously important. You need people to have well-paying jobs. It's one of the bases of sort of a good way of life. But the side effect now is that you are inviting these extremely powerful actors with a demonstrated commitment to an extreme left-wing cultural agenda into your state. And what we've seen is that those actors are going to turn around and lobby for things that uh, your voters are not actually interested in. And I I would say runs contrary to their interests.
0: Now, you mentioned the uh, activist groups. I think one of the main players here that you talk about is the transformation project and what's interesting about the transformation project is it's involved in things in uh including state-funded uh uh priorities that that are overseen or that are overseen by you know uh, the departments headed by you know people like christine Nome. so what is the transformation product project what was its role and kind of its interactions with sanford health and where is it funded from it's not all inside the state here right
1: no, it's. I, I mean, I haven't. I haven't seen the exact sort of breakdown of its financials, but mm-hmm. a hefty amount, and I would be pretty comfortable saying the majority of its funding comes from out-of-state groups, uh, including a lot of sort of powerful national left-wing groups that that we're we're comfortable with. But the the transformation project was the co-host with Sanford Health of this big Midwest gender identity summit, which is uh, coming up next week, I think January 13th in uh, Sioux Falls. Uh, and I thought they were interesting, A, because they were sort of at the center of this mini controversy over this gender identity summit, but B, because they're in they're sort of a perfect representation of this extremely powerful coalition of forces which are funded by out-of-state interests, which really are responsible for pushing uh, a deep red state like South Dakota left. The Transformation Project's funding, you know, they're getting, they got 100,000, more than $100,000 donation from the pop singer Ariana Grande. Because she started the sort of defend Trans Youth Fund, um, the this this big LGBT foundation in in Los Angeles donated their annual gala to raising one hundred and forty five thousand dollars for them, and that included donations from you know all the big Hollywood studios, Hollywood actors, the Kelly Clarkson show, right? So it's uh, this 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 powerful national coalition of left wing groups and 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 with a lot of money behind them are basically parachuting in to South Dakota. Um, via these local groups that are sort of astroturfed like the transformation project Uh, and they're working alongside this really powerful sioux falls based healthcare company sanford health uh, to organize these kind of astroturf protests uh, with the funding of and and the backing of a lot of uh, republican politicians to kill this long line of of social conservative bills including things like a ban on you know sex change surgeries and drugs for children uh, which we've seen passed in states like arkansas um, but in South Dakota, was killed in the Senate Health and Human Service Committee by a lot of legislators who were very close with left-wing activists and with Stanford Health.
0: Now, one of the things that you talk about with the Transformation Project is that they hold what almost sounds like a religious ceremony where they burn the the old names of the children who have undergone this process. And I wanna ask you, you know, a lot of people have different opinions on it, but I always like to like to sample the opinions of the people who are on the show. Do you think that these are separate phenomenon or do you think they're, they're kind of codependent? Do you think that the financial incentives are driving the actions of these people? Do you think it's purely ideological and the business leaders are being pulled behind? What do you think the, the different admixture is of these two interests?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that I was sort of pondering throughout the process of writing this piece, because we know that, uh, increasingly, especially as, as sort of prescriptions for puberty blockers, uh, skyrocket, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, especially that this is a profitable industry. And it's an industry with, in in a very gruesome way, a whole lot of uh, growth potential for these big uh, healthcare companies. We know that Sanford health profits off of sex change surgeries and puberty blockers, including for sometimes very young children. Um, so. Profit can't, to me, you can't talk about the, the the issue without talking about the profit motive for a company like Sanford Health. Uh, I do think, though, that if you just look at not just Sanford Health, but the kind of larger American medical bureaucracy, which it's a part of and which its leadership comes from, they are just really ideologically committed to this stuff. They really believe that the chemical castration of young children is a public good, which should be actively lobbied for. I think it's you know, particularly convenient that that ideology sort of lines up perfectly with their profit motives. And I think we should always be skeptical when these kind of ideological beliefs are just too perfectly nestled in with things that make these organizations a lot of money. Um, But I think that that a lot of the doctors, maybe most of the doctors who are sort of showing up as Sanford lobbyists to lobby for this stuff, uh, think of themselves as doing it um, for you know, ideological social justice reasons. They may get the backing of the sort of corporate leaders, at least partially because of profit. But I, I think the story that Sanford tells itself is is an ideological one.
0: Yeah, the I think it was the Daily Mail who just ran a piece, it was some paper, it might've been them, but they just ran a piece on the the kind of the Canadian euthanasia market and it's all of these doctors you know bragging about the number of people they have now euthanized and i think for a lot of people was shocking was like how enthusiastic and how how much almost a badge of honor they wore it as and i think people really need to understand that it's you know material incentives matter um and people will move with them and but they will also always build an ideology that's going to kind of undergird that and so it's not very difficult, really, to get people, especially who feel like they're on a vanguard, the tip, they're the 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 tip of the spear that's driving the revolution, to back like really horrific things and be very proud of it, uh, especially when it then lines up with them winning in every other material sense.
1: Right. It's you know I think this is part and parcel of this broader ideological apparatus, which a lot of, if not most of the people who are a part of it, I think, firmly think of themselves as, as genuinely and authentically believing, but is also like, like any sort of ruling class ideology, uh, it's one of its primary functions is to entrench and justify and propagate the power of this sort of ruling class apparatus, which includes the metal, medical bureaucracy and its allies in, in these activist groups. So it's a coalition that I think increasingly is sort of taking public shape and is throwing its weight around, particularly in red states. which. Uh, you know has goes all the way down to sort of you know these local transgender activists foot soldiers all the way up to the sort of major leaders of medical bureaucracies and and billionaire philanthropists who are held together by this public story they tell themselves and by an ideology which they sort of actively propagate Um, but that ideology also serves to sort of further entrench you know the the power of this sort of managerial apparatus and to delegitimate uh, its opponents which i think again is part of the pull for them
0: Now, speaking of delegitimating their opponents, you talk about how, you know, there's a noticeable divide in the state legislature, you have the people who are actively employed by uh Sanford Health who are voting on its behalf even though they're supposed to be Republican but it's not just that these people are you know uh, are supposed to be conservative but are promoting this stuff you also have an active ef- effort by outside forces to purge those that oppose this activity from the legislature you have people lining up to fund the removal of incumbent uh, representatives who aren't willing to go along with this or who are trying to push the bills that would protect children from this stuff.
1: Right. With the backing, you know, all the way up to the top of Christy Noem, by the way, it's worth noting that her office has sort of consistently denied that there's any collusion um, with, you know, SDA, SDSMA, which is the Sanford lobbying groups uh, and their allies um, uh, in the in the state Senate. But she has there is a hit list uh, circulated of names of the actual conservatives uh, in the state legislature who were opponents of the kind of Stanford transgender stuff. Um, it was circulated by Lee Schoenbeck, who's, you know, the, the president of the state Senate, and up until recently was a very close ally of, of Christy Noem's. Uh, and Noem, you know, just conveniently happened to endorse the primary challengers to pretty much every single conservative legislator who was on the hit list and Schoenbeck was out in public saying that Noam was you know, the greatest ally that they had in, in that endeavor. So uh, I'm a little skeptical of Noam's claim to not have been involved. But regardless, uh, it's, it, that, that whole campaign to primary all of these actual conservatives who were a, a sort of structural barrier to Sanford's goals in the state legislature um, had the financial backing of these Sanford lobbying groups, but it also enjoyed the, the sort of public support of a lot of Republican leadership in South Dakota who happened to be chummy with Sanford and its, and its allies. Um, so again, you're seeing the sort of coordinated apparatus which crosses these different sort of institutions working together as a cohesive class, um, which you, know, you see that phenomenon in a lot of different red states and at the national level, but it was just particularly stark in the context of South Dakota because we think of it from the outside as being such a conservative state.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say we just saw the showdown with the leadership in the House, right? And again, you know, we see holdouts for uh, not willing uh, to back the speaker as you know terrorists in 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 many cases. So this is h- hardly some kind of isolated incident. Anyone who is in somewhat in step with the voters seems to be you know lined up for a purge and the conservative leadership you know, using those words loosely seems to always be vastly to the left of the people they're supposed to be representing. I wanna get into that a little deeper in a second, but before we move on, I wanna bring up one more uh, example that you, you kind of sent over me today, a, a uh, article that you had also written previously on Utah Governor uh, Spencer Cox, because we don't want it to seem like this is just a phenomenon in you know South Dakota or just happens to be centered around Christy Nome. There are many Republican governors, and Cox is probably. Even more egregious here, willing to step out and completely embrace this ideology, even while being, you know, the governor of one of the reddest states in the country.
1: Right, and and Cox, I think, really is, to my to my mind, the most egregious Republican governor, at least in a red state. I mean, you can sort of point to to sort of blue state Republican governors like, uh, you know, Massachusetts and Maryland, where uh, their embrace of a certain kind of social liberalism is, to a certain extent, pragmatic because they they are governors of liberal states, but Utah is supposed to be and is by all accounts still a a very conservative state. Um, And Cox is one of those guys, you know, I haven't looked into the actual sort of institutional economic incentives behind what he's doing, although I'm sure they exist, but he's clearly someone who's really ideologically committed to uh, the most radical edge of the kind of left-wing cultural revolution. Um, and, you know, you can, you can sort of go down the list. He's sort of vetoed all of these different transgender bills. Um, his veto of this ban on men and women's sports was overrid- overridden by the state legislature um, in, I think, 30 minutes. So luckily, there's still some actual conservatives in, in the Utah legislature. But there is this video of him, you know, tearfully apologizing to LGBT activists when he, when he failed to sort of pass this, or uh, to kill this anti-LGBT bill. Um, he put his pronouns in his Instagram bio for a while. Um, you know, he introduced himself with pronouns in these various sort of forums. Uh, he defended this, uh, this, this scholarship program by the Utah Jazz, which excluded white kids. He said it wasn't racist, it's was obviously racist. Um, so, you know, that's an example, I think, again, of the power of the sort of ideological apparatus, where someone someone like Spencer Cox is more loyal to um, the kind of centers of, of, left-wing ideological power and to the, the sort of public narrative that they tell, uh, than he is to the views of, of the, of the people who actually elected him, uh, with the understanding implicit or explicit that he was going to govern, uh, in their interests. Um, and I think in, in, the, in the context of Utah, it's partially at least because I spent a lot of time in Utah and Utahns are extremely nice people. Mormons are very nice people. They're, they conceive of themselves as very kind, nice people. And the problem is that the, the sort of national left has defined nice in uh, terms of basically going along with the transgender agenda. Um, and it's, it's sort of uh, it's often conceived of as mean to sort of do something like ban the chemical castration of 12 year olds. And I think Cox clearly has bought into that. Um, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a demonstration of just how deep the kind of tentacles of this apparatus reach into the reddest parts of America.
0: So now that we've done a pretty good job of establishing, you know, what's going on here and why it's a phenomena across many different areas, not not just in South Dakota, but but multiple places in the United States and at the national level, I want to ask you a deeper mechanical question because uh, I you know I'll be I'll be interested to pick your brain on this. I have my own thoughts, but we'll, you know, let, let's get yours first. Is this new? Is, is this a, a phenomenon of, of the wokeism, the current cultural revolution? Why is this happening? Why is it that the GOP candidates of today are you know, far more progressively left wing than liberal Democrats from the 90s? <laughs> it's
1: a good question. And I'm, I am, I'm curious uh, about your thoughts as well. The apparatus is clearly not new. Um, I mean, you can go back and read someone like James Burnham talking about the sort of managerial elite uh, you know, almost a century ago. And that's clearly, I think the apparatus he was describing with this sort of fusion of uh, a variety of different institutions that had sort of traditionally been in competition with one another, you know, the federal bureaucracy, big business, the universities, et cetera, uh, under, under the guise of one sort of cohesive class, which often, you know, moves between the different institutions and the institutions, uh, I think have adopted the kind of left-wing ideology we're thinking about as their ideological apparatus. Um, so again, like the sort of institutional power structure has been around for a while. I do think that the ideology, um, and their willingness to sort of aggressively lobby for it has become more extreme. Uh, and I also just think that they've become more brazen in their efforts to do things that they previously thought they couldn't get away with. You know, we weren't seeing, uh, Republicans or the kind of, you know, lobbying groups like Sanford health that, that funded them lobbying against bans on sex change surgeries for kids. Uh, a couple decades ago, that's probably because it wasn't even an issue. And but the fact that it is an issue, I think, speaks to, to the sort of radicalization of the managerial ideology. Um, so again, the sort of apparatus and in the in the, in the sort of power centers are not new, and the kind of cohesive class that that governs them is not new. Um, but the the that class sort of attempts to sort of hollow out um, all these red state institutions and ultimately their ways of life as a corollary um, has become much more aggressive and brazen uh, than you know even even in the america that i was born in
0: but if these if this isn't new then then my question is why do we see this leftward drift like why is there why is there always a, an incentive for republican <coughs> leadership for conservative leadership to drift leftward right like we under you're absolutely right that it's accelerating and i do think that uh Burnham's understanding of the managerial class is and their incentives especially when it comes to like deterritorializing things and re-territorializing them into the market for the for the uh utility of easier management is is an eye-opening thing like I think that is essential but why why do we see this cycle over and over again on the right?'m I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I say this because I'm writing a piece on it so so, so, so spoiler spoiler I have I, like I said, I have my own thoughts on this but why why do we constantly see the incentives to always move leftward? Again, I don't I think you can go back to Buckley or before that and see that this has always been the way that the American right has operated. Since 1950, at least, why why isn't there an incentive to serve the base? Why, why isn't there an incentive to be to the to be to the right to have the vanguard to the right of the voters?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this was a critique uh, from the right of Buckley. I, I think in the in the case of Buckley, it's a little more complicated. Um, I'm not contractually obligated to say that. As <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I, I think Buckley was was uh, overall a, um, a salutary figure. Um, but one, one thing he was criticized for uh, was, and this was a major debate, there was a fault line in the right at the time, um, was trying to sort of conceive of the conservative movement uh, as seeking affirmation of and membership within this sort of managerial regime. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there, he made strong arguments for that, but it was it was a critique, um, and the, the critique was that uh, if you're actually going to, you know, fundamentally achieve the things that you say that you want to achieve, um, you're going to be sort of neutered by your membership in a class, which is sort of functionally, institutionally committed to opposing those things. Um, but the, the, I think the, to, to answer your larger question, the, the sort of Republican elites uh, you know, sort of always seeming to capitulate to the left in ways that the left never capitulates to the right does have to do with their membership in, or at least proximity to these centers of power, which are wholly dominated by, controlled by uh, the left and particularly the cultural left is where you see, uh, you know, these kinds of capitulations. Um, And, you know, that manifests in a lot of different ways. It manifests in the sort of public narrative control of uh, the, of the sort of the dominant conversation, you know, there's this thing called the New York Times effect uh, that that people talk about, where uh, you know, conservative media like National Review can run a hundred pieces about something, um, but it'll it'll likely have less social effect than if the New York Times runs a really long piece about it. There, the good example of this was sort of anti-porn, where you had all these conservative anti-porn activists um, spending decades sort of lobbying uh, for sort of harsher crackdowns on child pornography on sort of human trafficking, et cetera. And then Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times did one big piece and all of a sudden legislators in in the US Senate sort of moved on it. Um, So so that sort of uh, power differential in terms of these narrative forming and policing institutions is huge. But it's also just the fact that if you look at like the composition of the Republican elite, they are formed by and come from often, not always, but often, um, these kind of managerial elite institutions. They go to elite universities, uh, in D.C., they frequent a lot of institutions that kind of sit at the center uh, of, of that. Uh, they're, they're often chummy, as we talked about with big business, which is very much representative of this class. As a result, either explicitly or implicitly, you know, consciously or subconsciously, they sort of think in terms of the framework that has been set by uh, a, a regime that is, that is hostile to the things that the people who actually elect them are looking for. Um, and that's why they see it as acceptable to capitulate on things that people sort of outside of or with less proximity to those power centers see as unacceptable.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think a huge part of this is the fact that the very skill set that allows you to operate a party, to op- to write you know, uh, pieces for a major publication to produce a television show, those kind of things are the skill sets that are acquired inside the institutions that are promoting managerial values. And that means that at the end of the day, even if you see yourself as the right most person in those institutions, you're still far to the left of the people who are, are you're supposed to be representing. And so over and over again, we see people moving this direction because really you're you're not giving up that much by, you know, letting a little bit of the right wing stuff slide. At the end of the day, you're still the most qualified person on the right to, to kind of lead it. I think there's also a huge problem with the neocon effect where you have these people come in, they fall out of the left because the left has gotten too radical for them. And, you know, this is the famous Ronald Reagan. I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And now those people enter to the right. And because they are of the managerial class, because they are the well-spoken, they are the properly trained, they are the properly credentialed, they uh, feel the entitlement to lead, and because the right wants to be able to win a victory, they immediately move to acquiesce to the demands of these new members of the right-wing coalition, and all of a sudden you see you know, guys like Buckley ca- canceling people to his right in order to take control you know, of, of, of the movement. And I think you, this is this is an, a very old cycle. This is not new. I think this is something that is repeated over and over again, um, and you know the, that's why we continuously see uh, you know our leadership in you know the current year to the left of again Democrats from. You know, twenty years ago, because the, you know they are the Demo- they are the Democrats from twenty years ago that shoved that got shoved out of that movement and they got forced to the right and now that they're there, they have the quality to lead and now that they're in leadership, they know that they need to get rid of their right wing if they're going to be able to maintain their power there.
1: Right. I'm glad you brought up neoconservatism because I actually think it gets to this sort of deeper problem with the kind of ideological power or influence um, of the left. It was. It was Speaking of James Burnham as well, I I wrote this column today where I was quoting um, this 1972 essay that Burnham wrote criticizing uh, neoconservatism um, in National Review, by the way. Uh, But uh, Burnham argued that uh, while neoconservatives had broken with liberal doctrine, um, they retained the emotional gestalt of liberalism, which is the liberal sensitivity and and temperament, um, which is part of this sort of deeper critique of neoconservatism, which in many ways, uh, controls the kind of central apparatus of mainstream conservatism now which is actually accepted a lot of the basic premises of the left and often just counters that sort of pragmatically or practically speaking conservative ends uh, are are or conservative means are a better way to reach left-wing ends and you see that you know across the spectrum like you know one of the the things that that you know constantly gets me is you you hear about you hear conservatives i mean the the sort of um the sort of the low IQ version of it is Democrats are the real racists, but the, the sort of higher IQ version of it is uh, the argument that, for example, abortion is systemic racism, or the public school system is systemic racism, or, um, the, uh, I don't know, the, oh, the welfare system is systemic racism. Um, and the, what they're, what they're doing is they're indicting these left-wing policies using an extremely left-wing premise, which is that any policy that has a disparate racial impact um uh is evidence in and of itself of the sort of systemic racism and that ultimately that america is rife with systemic racism it's just left-wing policies instead of right-wing policies and you regularly hear conservatives make those kinds of arguments as if sort of appealing to that is going to convince people on the left which it never will you're, you're never going to beat them at their own game but it's evidence also of the kind of internalization on the right um of uh these these sort of core left-wing premises about you know the purpose of public policy being sort of egalitarian redistribution and, and, and social reconstruction um and you know the idea that america is a systemically racist country which it isn't um you know you see that you know there's there's a, there's a house gop statement in january 2020 about the trump economy where they're boasting about the fact that under the trump economy women's wages are rising higher than uh, raising, r- rising quicker than than men's wages and women of colors wages is are uh you know are growing faster than both women or men's uh, wages who are white um, it's the same thing I mean like we actually know that that uh, that women's wages uh, rising faster than men's wages is bad in terms of marriage formation because there's an enormous amount of sort of social science showing that women don't want to marry men who make less than them but again it's the sort of internalization by this official organ of the House GOP that the way to make the case for the trump economy is that women are getting richer faster than men are Um, you know, you can go down the list, you can find any number of examples. That one just stood out to me, but that's kind of, uh, one of the, that was one of the sort of founding credos of neoconservatism. And it was a subject of, of criticism from the kind of old right. And from the paleos during the kind of Neo paleo wars, which is that the NEOs had basically embraced conservative public policy, but kept the the left wing ends. Um, but you know, the, the NEOs won that war pretty decisively and the paleos and the old right were, were often pretty marginalized. And the result is that a lot of what, what passes from mainstream conservatism today also retains that kind of emotional gestalt of liberalism that, that Burnham was talking about in the 70s.
0: So now that we have a better understanding of kind of why this has been institutionalized on the right, here come the hard questions. So um, and they're ones that I don't have necessarily an immediate answer. I have some ideas, but, but I don't want to claim to have all these answers either because they are genuinely difficult questions. So if we see that there is an innate problem with the class that shares these values across both parties and the institutional incentives uh, built into these and the, the adoption of frames and those kind of things, what is the move here? Because we've already acknowledged that like, okay, we understand that like inviting these massive corporations into your right-wing state will probably make it drift left-wing but what's the answer just don't have corporations in your state like that seems like economic suicide right we say well the managerial class is uh gonna necessarily push the conservatives to the left great but what's the plan like don't have educated people in don't have people who are able to operate bur- operate bureaucracies inside the right like what what is the escape mechanism here? How do we see our way around this corner?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's sort of the question, defining question of our age. Sure. I would be um, I would be sort of uh, I mean, I, I don't I don't claim to have sort of like the perfect comprehensive answer. If I did, hopefully people who are smarter and more, more powerful than I did uh, would also have that answer. Um, but I think it's a bunch of different things. I mean, there's a sort of granular sort of policy level question and then there's like the big sort of paradigm question. Um, the granular sort of policy one is the sort of obvious stuff of uh, stop listening to the Chamber of Commerce and business groups uh, or taking your cues from them um, in terms of public policy when it comes to, you know, all of the culture war stuff, you know, the transgender issue, immigration, you know, critical race theory in schools, all of that stuff. In every red state, you can find the, the Chamber of Commerce, which used to be the GOP's kind of like, you know, constituency lobbying against anything that social conservatives try to do. Um, and for Republican voters to actually start holding. Uh, the Republican leaders accountable, because in places like South Dakota, um, you know, if Republican voters had uh, an, more time, I think, to sort of spend paying attention to what was actually happening in their state legislature, I think they'd be outraged uh, by what was happening. So the Republican base is really, I think, the right's friend uh, in, in this fight. Um, and that kind of gets to the larger kind of framework question, which is that you stop looking um, as the sort of source of your power, of your agenda, Uh, of of your sort of priorities inside the kind of managerial apparatus and you try to organize resistance to the managerial apparatus in the places uh that have are the farthest away from its proximities in power it's uh it's maybe a little maybe a little (laughs) spicy but there's actually this was one insight that Mao Zedong had when he was um when he was when he was fighting uh, the in, in China which was that the people who need to lead the kind of counterinsurgency are the ones who are the furthest away from the centers of power so he sort of his innovation in, in marxist uh, theory was that you go to the peasants who are the ones who are the most alienated from the regime and the most sort of resentful towards it um to to kind of be the kind of organizing ethos of your movement i think the trump base is a pretty good analogy for that in the context of what we're talking about the kind of the sort of the middle americans are the ones who are the most alienated by uh alienated from sort of denigrated by and hurt by um, these kind of national managerial institutions and those are the ones i think where we should be those are the people that we should be organizing into a kind of self-conscious coalition um, to actually make a bid for power in these national institutions um but there is a real i mean there's a real sort of point to be made that because that managerial apparatus is where power lies in america to a certain extent what conservatives and the right are doing are competing for power within it, um, rather than, you know, trying to overthrow it outright. Um, because the, you know, at least at least for now, you know, that, that that's the sort of institutional framework that, that we're stuck with. But I think thinking in, in those terms um, and understanding how sort of power functions in America today is a pretty good way to get a lot of Republicans to wake up and realize that kind of going along to get along with these big business interests, particularly on these cultural issues, um, is not the way to win.
0: Yeah, Francis uh, Sam Francis had the, basically this outlook. He said that you're, you know, one of the reasons that kind of the the Buckleyite approach failed was that it was attempting to work from within the managerial framework, and that the if you don't have a critique of the framework, then you simply have you're only you're only negotiating your place inside of it. You don't have any hope of actually fundamentally dismantling it or, or opposing it in in any serious way. I, I guess one issue that i think is a big problem in this because of course mao's approach is um it might be revolutionary for communism but it's not particularly revolutionary when it comes to like the understanding of power this is the juvenile high and low versus middle this is the you know the a uh, power looking to to kind of erode the uh, opposing power structures seeking out uh you know the periphery but in order to do that you need to have i think uh, the high, right like so you can you can take the the Trumpian coalition, but it needs to have another power center with the ability to erode the manager managers in the way that the managers eroded the bourgeoisie power, right And so you need an alternative power center with the ability to kind of take that coalition and wield it as a hammer against kind of the managerial apparatus. Uh, I think a lot of people look at a guy like Elon Musk and I understand why and I think there's some merit to that. Do you see any? Uh, any figures or any other competing power apparatuses that might be able to wield the trumpian coalition in that manner
1: well i think the the sort of other strategy and, and the two can i think can and should coexist and but this is where i think elon musk is is indicative of, of this sort of second strategy is that you need class traders within the apparatus right i mean mm-hmm. one of the sort of weirdest um critiques that you hear from some conservatives of sort of, sort of populist right Is you know, well, you know, like at least the populist elites, it's like, well, you know, he went to Harvard or he went to this is something that people say about someone like Josh Hawley, like, oh, he went to Harvard or Yale Law. So he's a hypocrite for sort of styling himself as like a populist representative of the people. It's like, no, every serious populist movement in history has understood that you need elites and you need sort of class traders. You know, FDR, whatever you think of him, was a class trader, right? He was someone who came from this kind of um, upper upper crust of American society who styled himself as someone representing the interests of workers. Um, so, so, so finding people who are sort of allied with and believe in your cause um, and who are willing to sort of uh, align themselves with the kind of like mass grassroots within the apparatus. Um, and those people do exist in DC um, is, is, is one way to make your way in. You know, Elon Musk is an example of this. I mean, he's, he's sort of different than the managerial class in that he's in this weird way this uh, this sort of remnant of this older kind of America where the ruling class was this kind of capitalist entrepreneurial class um, hmm. which is not the same thing as the managerial elites who don't really invent things or or particularly you know, are particularly innovative they draw their power from managing these kind of pre-existing corporate superstructures uh, musk is actually you know an entrepreneur he invents things um, but he was also you know obviously you know' he's the wealthiest man in the world I think so he is is from uh, the upper class, and he moved in those circles his entire life, even if he was not quite the same as the as the kind of normal membership. Um, so the, but again, the, you know, those two strategies can kind of can exist uh, uh, with with one another. So Musk's uh, attempted takeover of Twitter, and we haven't seen exactly how it's going to play out yet. Um, but that's kind of an example of someone that you could call a class trader, or someone who kind of represents like an outsider institution, but also is familiar with working within all of these different apparatuses, um, actually uh, wielding the power that they have uh, to to take over. And I think, you know, in in those examples, a a big part of the role of someone like Musk is to open up space for the building of those institutions that exist outside of and in diametric opposition with the kind of managerial apparatus. Because the managerial apparatus is is obviously invested in killing any attempts to build sort of things that could actually present a real threat to their power. Um, And someone like Musk neutralizing their attempts to do that, at least in the context of Twitter, is one of the most valuable things that he can do
0: yeah i know why people have a lot of hesitation around guys like musk and it's fair like don't don't go all in on that don't think that he's you know super base and 100 aligned with you but do remember that almost all of the guys who have led these kind of things tend to be guys who came from the power structure found themselves with no other place to go and then reach out to the disaffected people so like you know, Caesar didn't want to be a popular, but he ended up having to be because the other other option was to have the Senate completely destroy him. And, you know, I don't know that Trump wanted to represent the red states the way he did, but you know, the only option left was was that because the left was was more than willing to abandon him. And and the same thing with Musk. If Musk wants to get the things done that he or if, if Musk is going to get the things done that he wants to get done, the left won't let him. And so he he's kind of forced in that. So just because someone, you know, works inside of the system to some level that doesn't mean that they're not there's not an opportunity. People people often have to rise to that stuff when kind of the forces of history come to them. It's it's not that they've always been on your side and are just ideologically aligned with you. Right. No, um, I think that's exactly yeah. right yeah so we've got a few super chats here from the audience lining up so we'll see if we can answer those real quick but before we do uh can you let people know where to find your stuff and do you have any pieces that they should be looking for anything big coming out
1: uh so you can find my stuff i post everything on twitter so that's probably the easiest one to do so i'm nate hockman at twitter i'm at nj h o c h m a n nj hockman at twitter um and i've got yeah i've got some other big stuff uh, in the pipeline coming up um i kind of want to dig more into in some of the stuff that we're talking about because because as we were talking about um you know this is not something that's unique to South Dakota I've written mm-hmm. about it in other red states before uh, but I think particularly in these rural areas where the local media is either totally neutered or just doesn't have the resources um you know there's there's a lot of reporting to be done so that's uh, keep an eye out for for some of that stuff
0: all right so glow in the dark here for ten dollars thank you very much sir one major contributor to the leftward drift of all major figures of or leaders of the right come from deep blue states or cities so by exposure they tend to be more left yeah and i think this goes along with our our talking about the class the managerial class structure part of this right that because these people might be the rightmost person in dc or new york or you know whatever part of uh, california they grew up in they are still left-leaning and then are willing to acquiesce compared to the base right
1: right and there's sort of longer commentaries about what the actual sort of substance of living in a city sort of does to one's sort of worldview. i grew up in a city so i'm not i'm I'm guilty of whatever whatever sort of indictment that presents but it's it's true that the sort of cultural milieu uh, that you come from uh, is just very different, um, in terms of like some of the, your, your sort of core premises, even if you think of yourself as a conservative. Um, and certainly if you're formed by the kind of institutions that represent those, those urban worldviews, like Ivy league universities, for example, um, you know, that's going to affect the way you think of some of things, even, even as a conservative, you have this very vivid sense of where the kind of wall is on the right and what things you can't pass, which just doesn't exist, uh, at least to the same extent on the left.
0: All right, let's go ahead and move on. Oh, glow and dark here again. Thank you, sir. Uh, what problem with the right? Uh, or the problem with the right is we look at things the way the left wants us to. What is important they decide. What isn't important, they decide by playing uh playing into the left dialectics, you lose. Now, I, I think this has been a pretty consistent critique I know it has of me, and it, it's certainly a lot of people uh, are are adopting this as well, understanding that the frame is the problem, right? That we're the right is largely running around chasing the news stories and using the language that the left wants them to um i see guys like chris rufo who are doing good work to try to shift this but where are the the maybe some of the key points where the right can try to refocus and set the agenda what things do they need to do to make sure that they're not constantly chasing the left wing narrative well it,
1: i mean a lot of it plays into everything that we we're talking about in terms of taking your cues from uh, constituencies and, and institutions insofar as they exist that that don't have the same proximity to these kind of power centers. Um, but I think, you know, the, the best example that I can come up with, uh, and, and you can criticize, you know, aspects of it, but but the pro life movement, um, what they did, it was was very, I think, indicative of what needs to be done across the board in terms of building outside uh institutions new original institutions dedicated to uh, a policy agenda which was obviously opposed by the power centers that we're talking about and then organizing you know in terms of you know decades of activism grassroots you know door knocking etc cetera, etc cetera, an entirely different sort of institutional media apparatus that set its own narrative um, and and was in many ways sort of a counter hegemonic narrative to the sort of central one um, and then sort of through that organization and through the sort of building of this sort of counterhegemonic narrative made it uh, you know, completely unacceptable if you wanted to be a national Republican to not embrace uh, at least a version of their policy agenda. If you look back to the to the 70s, you know, even even a decade after Roe v. Wade, um, you know, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were both kind of 50 50 on the abortion mm-hmm. there. You know, Nelson Rockefeller in New York, who's a Republican governor, signed the most liberal abortion law in the world. Um, at that time. And what the pro-life movement was extremely successful in doing is basically taking over the Republican Party apparatus on the one issue that they were lobbying for and remaking it in their image. And what they, what, the, the way that they did that, again, was through the sort of twin approaches of um, building a grassroots kind of consciousness, a coalition in the Republican base that was aware of itself as being pro-life, Um, and a sort of institutional superstructure through big activist groups, uh, pro-life media, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which, uh, sort of built the, the the sort of narrative and and the, kind of calling, you know, agenda that they, that they coalesced around. Um, and you know, you, you, you see that with things like the Federalist Society as well. All of these institutions are, are worthy of criticism too, but the pro-life movement I think was the most successful social conservative movement in recent memory, at least because they actually took this kind of grassroots outside insurgent coming in approach. um, And that was enormously successful. And, you know, they enjoy a lot of power still to this day as a result.
0: Yeah. One hopes that the the right will be able to do that in ways that facilitate further victories as well. That's, you know, that's a good point about the ability of them to kind of shift. And a lot of that is because the, the parties were more regional than ideological at that point. Um, But and there's a, there's a lot more to that as well. But uh, it's it's an excellent point that they were able to acquire that level of power due to their approach. The key thing, however, is that it didn't allow the conservatives to then win additional victories. In no. fact, in many in many ways, um, it just facilitated the left's uh, acceleration of things like the respect for marriage act and these kind of things right and so and so one of the key things i think conservatives need to understand is winning on policy issues comes after winning power um and and that has to be a, a key aspect as well
1: yeah yeah just really quickly the the pro-life movement was committed to one specific issue and they did sure. remarkably well on that but absolutely the, the sort of roadmap is is, is much broader uh, than that one issue um and you've seen republicans hold on to the pro-life issue as they sacrifice basically every other social conservative commitment um right so so you need a much more kind of all of the above approach uh
0: glow in the dark here again thank you very much sure any right winger on the uh, or religious person worth their salt will know that sin sells will you take the 30 pieces of silver for your morals and objections i mean yeah this is obviously a huge part of again uh, republicans embracing this pro business problem right is that there was always the inevitable uh, truth that businesses make far more money by dismantling your community and your traditions than they do by upholding them and so there uh, there was always this um unspoken but implicit uh, agreement that you were going to be able to kind of slowly but surely sell this kind of stuff to Americans under the idea of free enterprise free markets these kind of things so escaping that ideology is in- increasingly important i mean there are even sections of libertarians understanding this now so uh, again I, i'm i'm hopeful that the the uh the commerce, uh, the chamber of commerce constituency of the right is is waning in power, at least uh, you know slowly, um, but that will be an essential part of victory moving forward.
1: Right, and I will
0: say, you know, I don't
1: usually sort of defend libertarians, but one thing that a lot of libertarians have have often been correct about um, is that a lot of ways, a lot of times, the ways that this functions isn't purely kind of entrepreneurial free market, free enterprise capitalism. Uh, You know, big business basically uh, enjoys its monopoly over various industries by collaboration with, um, you know, quote unquote, big government, the managerial regime, whatever you wanna call it. Um, But the the kind of entrepreneurial sort of small and mid-sized businesses are often a threat to the big businesses that are actually throwing their weight around. And big business allies with the federal bureaucracy and regulators a lot of the time to box those sort of smaller competitors out. Um, those smaller competitors also out, often happen to be much more culturally conservative because they're based in sort of regional identities, um, whereas these kind of multinational corporations have no allegiance to any regional identity or even to the, the often to the nation that they exist in.
0: So uh, we've got friend Lee here for ten dollars off talk book. But uh, judging by your musical taste, I think you enjoy uh, Gamma Ray and Ed Guy if you haven't listened to these bands i highly recommend would be interested to know if you enjoy Uh, Yeah, you have correctly identified me as a power metal guy and uh, yes i have heard both of those bands i i in i like some other stuff i'm not the the biggest fan uh, of either um but but they are definitely in my wheelhouse so you you did correctly uh grab my uh taste there uh let's see uh creeper weirdo for two dollars uh this sounds a lot like dave um i'm assuming maybe you mean the distributist there um, if it if it does then that's that's probably true uh, we often overlap in uh, opinions Dave's a very smart guy so I often agree with him uh, let's hear glow in the dark here back again thank you very much sir I'm hearing a narrative now that DeSantis isn't the new right but more old right so MAGA isn't the future my counter isn't about laws or procedures but intent Without intent uh, borders are open what is your response to this uh, let me read that a little more carefully so I can craft a, a good answer. Um, all right, so uh, uh, let me say this because I, I think I understand some of your question, Glow of the Dark, but I might, I might not completely. So let me take the best swing at it, and you let me know. You don't you don't need a super chat again. You can just at me, and I'll I'll try to reply if I don't if I don't properly understand it. Uh, I hear a lot of people saying that Desantis is you know. Containment, that type of thing. He's he's not truly uh, a leader. He he's got too much establishment in him. He's not willing to kind of break some of the the rules in order to change things. Um, I have had the pretty a pretty consistent opinion. Um, I think on this, and it's always been the same. I'm from Florida. I'm a DeSantis fan. Uh, I gr- benefited gratefully from DeSantis's leadership, um, and I do not think that he is controlled opposition. However. I do not think DeSantis should run for president um because I think a uh I'm I'm selfish and I want him to leave Florida uh he's very good at it and I would prefer he not leave uh to waste his talents at the national level um I think the reason is that um then the ability of for him to build power and show How to create regional power structures in Florida and how governorship can be done in a way that dismantles the power of the federal bureaucracy is far more compelling than him going to Washington, finding out that actually change is not going to happen. He's just going to get log jammed and spending, you know, four to eight years arguing with the press um, and and getting smacked down by the federal bureaucracy. Not that I don't think he's competent. Um, I think he's highly competent. I just think that the the. Uh, enemy there is too strong. and I think he his power would be better spent uh, where he is. Um, I also think that people who think he's entirely containment, I, I will say one thing, uh, and again, I'm a DeSantis fan, so this is not this is not me saying I, I agree with that. I will say that DeSantis is um, has not proven that he's willing to touch some of the third rails and in some of the ways that Trump was. And I think that that means he is still untested in certain areas and the question of is he willing to stand up to the narratives and the power in those situations will be the defining question of whether or not DeSantis has what it takes to really uh, bring it to the next level and I think that's a question that we probably only get to answer once we see that run actually happen but uh Nate do you have any thoughts on that well I'm not from Florida
1: so I think I have less of um sort of a a selfish investment in um (laughs) DeSantis remaining governor although I I totally would uh find that viewpoint compelling. uh, If I was from Florida, Um, you know, I think, I mean, I do want to see DeSantis uh, run for, run for president sort of cards on the table. Um, I, I, you know, I have friends that are sort of uh, more loyal to Trump and, you know, are are skeptical of DeSantis. I I don't think that that's a stupid opinion. Um, I have yet to really see evidence of the arguments that, that he's sort of, um, you know, establishment or, you know, controlled opposition or whatever sort of uh, names are, are thrown around about him, um, except that he sort of taken meetings with Paul Ryan or something like that, which to me is is not, uh, you know, an indictment in and of itself, you know, you, you still have to work with the GOP. Um, but I do I mean, I I think if you look at the sort of influence that this, what you're talking about in terms of like building the red state model, and DeSantis mm-hmm. being a leader, if you look at how much DeSantis just from Florida has, has sort of set the bar, uh, and in terms of how many governors, you know, Greg Abbott, you know, even Christy Noem sort of feels obligated to try to sort of posture uh, like like DeSantis sometimes uh, that Republican governors now feel obligated to follow, which they didn't feel obligated to follow a few years ago. I would love to see that at the national level. And I think, um, you know, if DeSantis wins and has the kind of anywhere near the kind of loyalty of the Republican voter base that Trump did. Um, Trump, I think at at times squandered, uh, the, the sort of power that had been given to him by the loyalty of Republican voters, uh, to sort of remake the Republican party. Um, and I think DeSantis is obviously much more focused and competent. Uh, and I think, you know, as, as, as much as aspects of the kind of federal bureaucracy are, are feel pretty permanent and entrenched right now, uh, you do need like-minded legislators at the national level. Uh, and I'd like to see sort of DeSantis have the same effect that he's had from Florida across the country in, in Republican governorships uh, at the national level. I'd be, you know, encouraged mm-hmm. by that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would like to see that too. I'm just skeptical about whether whether that's possible. I think the it's a different animal um, to do it nationally. He also, again, has to address uh, topics like immigration that are mm-hmm. going to get very difficult. Um, and, you know, he need, needs to explain how the FBI gets addressed like there there are like I think I think anyone who's going to make a substantial change at a national level for the right has to be willing to to tackle some very very difficult topics and again he might be able to he might he might have all of that and be ready to go I'm just saying he's untested in those areas um and and we'd have we'd have to see for sure um let's see uh ks for 4.99 the right will never win uh, until christianity is discarded or includes evolution other cutting-edge sciences until then it's culturally backwards uh for elites um okay i mean (laughs) this this seems like a kind of adorable uh critique uh the right even if this was true, which I don't think it is, but even if it's true, all you're saying is like the right's just got to become left wing to compete with. The, okay, like, like y- yes, I'm aware of the neocon argument. Like, like I'm aware of the cycle. Like the the right must adopt the the all the cultural positions of the left in order to appeal to elites. All right, fine. Like, yeah, I guess. But then what? What are you? Are you any kind of opposition? Fine. I mean, uh, the right uh, uh, to embraces all kinds of cutting edge science probably too much in 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 certain areas um so I don't understand that critique as well I I think again if you're if your critique of the right is it's just got to abandon its values so it can get to the left of the left in order to uh, appeal to elites then okay but yeah that's not the right or shouldn't be
1: yeah, really quickly. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't really take this view uh, particularly seriously with all, with all due respect. Um, but the the other sort of like more radical critique is there is like this radical right kind of anti-Christian critique, which is that Christianity is sort of inherently liberal because it's too egalitarian. You know, it's too universalist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I wrote the, 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 the sort of long New York Times piece I wrote was was kind of about that. And I was citing the kind of radical right thinkers, uh, including uh, Sam Francis, by the way, who were critical, at least of of sort of political Christianity's effect in terms of its kind of egalitarianism and universalism. I just think it's an extremely dangerous game to play. One, because so much of sort of our our culture and heritage is contained in the the Christian tradition, Um, but also just because once you abandon sort of a sense of the divine and the transcendent, um, things go pretty dark places uh, pretty quickly. And I'm not necessarily enthusiastic about what a sort of non-Christian conservatism would look like.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's see uh alex blasquez for five dollars thank you very much sir uh, i just moved to montana from california and the lgbt stuff is only seen near the big the bigger cities it's definitely a younger voting block way more motivated i mean yeah that's absolutely true right like you know the the, the old saying is there are no blue states only blue cities and while that's true, that's also kind of important because cities, for better or for worse, are where political power and financial power concentrate. And so, you know, the fact that this stuff is in many red states only uh, present in these certain areas, that might feel comforting for a moment. The problem is that these are the places of influence. And I think something that the right really needs to go away from is the idea that like uh, views are transmitted because they are held by the wider populace or that culture is adopted because the people support it. Um, These things come top down, not bottom up. And the fact that your universities and your media could change the entire definition of what a man or woman is inside of like five years should probably help you understand kind of where power actually lies when it comes to culture and political influence yeah fully agreed all right guys i think we hit everything there just want to double check and make sure so i'm not robbing anybody of a super chat yep i think that's everything all right let's go ahead and wrap things up uh nate i want to thank you so much again for coming on it's been a great time talking to you uh i think we you already told everybody where to find your stuff but just one more time if you want to remind them you know where can they follow you where are they going to read your work
1: Yeah, follow me at Twitter N J Hockman N J H O C H M A N, and anything you know, even semi-important that I do, I'll I'll probably post on there.
0: Excellent, and as always, guys, if you're new here, go ahead and uh, make sure you follow uh, and or subscribe. And uh, this is also now available, remember, as a podcast. So if you want to be able to listen while you're mowing the lawn or lifting weights or, you know, cleaning the house or whatever, just make sure you go ahead and you can find it on any of the major, you know, platforms. And if you do go over to something like Apple or Spotify, make sure you got a rating or review, whatever that really helps out with everything. But that said, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.